When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is, in, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was would, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord, Thank you, RJ. You guys may be seated. We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to the back. You're following Mr. Brad back there. You guys can go ahead and turn to John 6. I will say it is an honor um, to preach God's word this morning. And uh, I'm very thankful for the opportunity. So um, this morning, the first thing kind of, you know, I, I know a lot of you guys like to eat out or whatever, and we find ourselves eating out too much, but I really, really love it when my wife cooks or when I cook or when we get to eat at home, right? Um, and I pretty much like everything she cooks. There was this maybe the first month of marriage, she burned some hamburger helper, which I'm still not sure how you do that. But other than that, since then, it's been pretty, you know, pretty much consistent. Um, you know, we have some go-to meals she cooks, some things that we like, like I'm sure all of you do. But when we cook, here's the deal. Like, I, I like things a little bit spicy, right? Like not, not just adding like cayenne in just for the sake of making it spicy, but like that adds flavor. It enhances what she cooks, right? And, and my family likes that same type spice, but to a much lesser intensity than what I like, right? So even so, even though I, I'm, I'm more higher scale with that, a lot of times Sharice's goal is when she cooks is she'll add enough seasoning and spice in that I don't have to add anything to it. Ultimately, she doesn't want me to go grab the Tony Sacheries, is what it boils down to. But here's the deal. I always grab the Tony Sacheries, right? If we're eating at our house, if we're eating at mom's house, mom moved here from North Carolina a few years ago and we had to explain to her what Tony Sacheries was. And now there's a, a little, you know, salt and pepper shaker and there's a Tony Sacheries shaker there on the little stool right behind the table <laughs> so I can grab it and put the Tony Sacheries on it. Therese hates it. 99% of the time, I'm going to grab the Tony Sacheries literally no matter what, right, before I have ever even tasted a bite of what she's cooked. really bothers her. Constantly, she says, you haven't even tasted it yet, right? And she just hasn't accepted that it doesn't matter. I'm going to grab the Tony Sacheries. See, what she cooks is almost always really, really good, right? But even so, I like to sprinkle some of the good stuff on there and make it a little bit better. See, today, many Christians or those who would call themselves Christians treat Jesus the same way. We want to just sprinkle him in where it suits us and where it fits into our lives, right? We just want to sprinkle a little Jesus in and make things a little bit better. 
But church, Jesus didn't come to make us better. Jesus came to make us new. But when life gets difficult, don't we find ourselves like turning to other things to put our hope in? People who find themselves in a great deal of debt. You know, we hear about this guy, Dave Ramsey, and there's, he, he's, a, he's a Christian guy, and these are great, so we go buy, which doesn't make sense to me to be in debt and go buy more stuff. It never has. But we go buy this Dave Ramsey curriculum, and we go to it even at church, and we just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in our finances and hope that that helps. Right? We have people who unfortunately are terminally ill or very, very sick, and they may pray, and they may ask others for prayer, but ultimately we find them putting their hopes in modern medicine. Maybe it's a couple who is dealing with or who has dealt with infertility, right? There's a group of people around them, maybe one of our missional communities praying just fervently for them, right? All the while they're putting their hopes in some new reproductive technology that will help them conceive a child. People find themselves addicted, drugs, alcohol, pornography, right? They may even repent of these things. But they're putting their hope in their own self-discipline to get themselves out. Now, while none of these things are necessarily bad, in fact, some of them are pretty good things. The problem is that these things become our greatest hope. The problem is when we turn to these things above Jesus Christ, right? We willingly bow down at their altars and we make a good thing an ultimate thing. And as good and as right as some of these things are, they do not give us life. We will always be disappointed when these things fail to come through. For people who are dealing with these things, these can be really hard things to hear. So it begs the question for me, as I was preparing this week, is what's my hope in? What's your hope in? Let's look to the words of Jesus. He says right away right here, that many of the disciples heard it and said it's a hard saying, who can listen to it? So when we think about things that can be hard, right, it's a hard saying, what does that mean? There's really two ways to look at this, right? The first way to really look at this is that maybe it's just difficult to understand. Maybe the way it's worded, maybe just intellectually it's difficult to understand. Secondly, this can be hard because it's not what we want to hear. We've all gone to people that we trust for advice, for guidance, thinking that maybe they'll tell us what we want to hear and we can just get away with what we want to do. And then when they give us the advice that we didn't want to hear, it's just super hard to hear, and so we sometimes turn away from that. But let's look at what this hard saying is. He says, when the disciples heard it. So what does it say? I'm going to jump back to verses 52 through 58 and read those for us real quick. Says the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Notice that Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is a conditional statement, right? Unless you do this, this won't happen. So some of you guys know I teach geometry, and in geometry we teach conditional statements. We also call them if-then statements. That's what this is right here. It's an if-then statement. So here's the way this works. Those of you that maybe hadn't had geometry a while or didn't have a teacher as, as great as I am, right? The if part is what we call the hypothesis, and then the then part is what we call the conclusion. And what we know is that we assume that, that if the if part, the hypothesis comes true, then the conclusion will certainly happen. And so Jesus says here, if you eat the flesh, right, he says, if you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, then you will have life. That's encouraging, but here's the problem with an if-then statement. One of the examples I always use is, you know, if it's raining outside, then I will get wet. That may be true. The problem is, there are other ways I can get wet. I can take a shower, I can go for a swim, right? All these things are possible outside of that. So Jesus follows this up and continues with what's much more of a promise here. He says that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, I want you to notice the active tense there, feeds and drinks, has eternal life. This is more of what we call a biconditional statement. This is an if and only if statement. Right? Jesus' words throughout this entire passage are saying to his followers, you can have eternal life if and only if you eat of my flesh, the true food, and drink of my blood, the true drink. He's saying there is no other way. This happens if and only if you eat and drink. Only the Spirit gives life. Your flesh is useless. He says in verse 63, he says, uh, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The NLT translation says very, very clearly, human effort accomplishes nothing. We can read in Isaiah that our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags to God. There's nothing that we can do on our own to get ourselves into a right standing with God. Jesus says that we can have eternal life if and only if we feed on his flesh and we drink his blood. Now, clearly, this is a hard saying to understand. And even when we grasp it and we understand what Jesus is really saying to us and to his disciples there, right, it can be harsh on the ears of those who don't want to go all in with Jesus. And Jesus knows this, and so he follows up and he says, he knows disciples are grumbling. He says, do you take offense to this? Now, Jesus is not apologizing here because he knows that he hasn't said anything that's offensive. Right? So he's setting up the next question really right here. Right? He says, he says what, if, uh, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, what if you saw me where I was before? What if you saw me at home with the Father? surrounded by angels, full of glory. Would you take offense to that? The answer there is obviously not. Jesus is simply trying to shift and refresh their perspective a little bit so that they can better understand what he wants them to understand. So our first point today that Jesus, I think, wants us to see here is that the word of God gives us life. See, the Spirit makes us alive through God's word. Jesus literally says this, 
verse 63. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See, we receive the word by hearing the word and by reading the word. And hearing it read out loud, reading it ourselves, hearing the word of God preached, these things are essential for life because it's his word that pierces our heart. It's his word that changes our souls. As God, God's very word spoke the entire universe into existence. He literally spoke life from the beginning and his son is continuing to do so today. It's by his words that we're rescued from a spiritual desert, that we're taken from a spiritual death to be made alive in Christ. He says that some of you do not believe and he follows that up with, this is why I've said that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Our flesh, our works are useless. He says it's no help at all. And what happens here now is that his followers have realized that salvation comes from God alone. And that they have no power in their own salvation. And it causes them to turn away. See, we want control. We want to have a say in everything. A few years ago, uh, I was spearheaded the mission trip to Boquete, Panama. And I'd been there a couple times before, and I was able to go in there with some very godly men, two of which are in this room, but um, kind of planned it for our, some of our football players to go. And uh, I was excited. It was the first time I'd planned a mission trip. Uh, I was super pumped about it. Now, you guys that don't know me, have never been part of planning something with me, I'm, I'm detail-oriented. I, I mean, my, my football coaches give me a hard time on Friday because our schedule is at 6.13 we do this, at 6.17 we do this, and there's no round numbers there. It's exactly this much time. Our practice plans are the same way. It is detailed. So this mission trip was exactly the same way. And I never stopped to think about what I was doing, but I had it all planned out. And I'm thinking about, you know, I've got these, these teenagers. I mean, some of them, <clears throat> excuse me, as young as 15 this is spring break of some of their freshman years, and their parents are like, yeah, coach, we trust you. Go ahead. Take them, take them to a foreign country. We're fine. And uh, you plan everything out great, right? Well, <clears throat> not long before we left, one of the men that was supposed to go with us had to back out because uh, his mom was sick and he had to stay here, which is not a big deal, number one, because God replaced that man with another godly man who went and had a phenomenal time, did a great job. But number two, it was tough because he was a doctor. And that brought a lot of comfort to the parents who were sending them to this foreign country. Well, there's a doctor there. He, he's done a lot of stuff. He's, we're going to be good, right? But everybody kind of took a deep breath. Uh, we went ahead and, and, uh, and, and went. They, they were fine. And so I had everything planned out. One of my things I was most excited about was, sounds really stupid, but I was going to drive in a foreign country. We had been to Panama several times before, and for whatever reason, I was just upset that I hadn't been allowed to drive. It wasn't me. I wanted to drive. I don't, I don't know why. I just did. And so I'm excited about this. I've got, you know, details, right? I've got, I've got everything lined up. We're going to land in David right there at the airport. We're going to pick up our truck and our van we've rented. We're going to drive the 30 minutes to Boquete on an American-made highway, so it's not bad roads. It's going to be great, you know? Um, and we get there, and what do you need to rent a car? You need your driver's license. So I pull out my wallet, and it's not there. And so I start thinking, where's my driver's license? Got through my passport, got through my bag, maybe it fell out. I know it didn't fall out. I'm just trying to think. And I remember the last place I had it was at the bank. I was getting money out for the trip. So I stepped away. Cal Cathcart was standing beside me. He, he's there. He's like, I'll take care of this. So I step away and I call Sharice. And I was like, hey, 
I think this stupid lady at the, at the bank kept my, and I said stupid, kept, kept my, she kept my uh, uh, driver's license and gave me money but didn't give me my license. She's like, okay, it'll be okay. And Kyle and, and Philip are like, hey, just calm down. It's okay. Like, we, we have our license. We can drive. I'm like, no, you don't understand. This was not part of the plan. And so I'm telling Sharice, you go tell this lady how stupid, you go to the bank and you get my license and you tell her how stupid she was and how much of an inconvenience this has been for me. So Sharice went to the bank and she's much nicer than I am. She didn't give her a piece of her mind or what I really wanted her to give was a piece of my mind and she didn't do that. She's much nicer about it. But the lady had my driver's license. That was the first step. So I didn't get to drive. So I stewed about that for a little bit and when we got in the van, the truck, I just, whatever, I'll just walk. I don't care. You know, I'm mad. I'm angry. Well, the other part of the trip that I was excited about was we had realized that we had teams going two to three times a year to this area, and there's an orphanage we work in, and the boys' home we, we help out in with our older boys that have some behavioral issues, and I was super excited. But what we realized was we were ministering to these, these boys to, to the point where they knew who we were coming back. They knew our names. We had been coming so often, and we were there so much. But we were leaving them in the hands of these guards and these teachers and things like that. It's guards, like a juvie, right? Um, but we're leaving them in their hands, and, and, and we're not ministering or pouring into the adults that, that are in their charge. And so we thought, you know what? Like, we need to do this. And so uh, the four guys, we got together, and we, we planned a devotional out. We're going to lead this one afternoon. Because we go, and we work, and all morning we're working, and we're pouring concrete and wheelbarrow and stuff right there. And, you know, so we're, we're work, working our tails off. But Wednesday is the day. Like, we're going to get to, to speak and to literally talk to these men about the gospel well naturally out of the four of us that win I'm the I'm the best talker or maybe I just talk the most right and so we'll just call it the same thing today but I had this plan I had the devotional written out it was there God was going to save all of them it was going to be incredible well the night before we are sitting there eating and, and the guys are in the back of the house and um coach we need you in here and I got a guy doubled over and I won't go into what was wrong because it's kind of private but he was hurt so I couldn't drive, so Kyle had to drive, and we take this kid over 30 minutes to the hospital in a third world country, and I'm on the phone with this kid's mom at midnight and his dad, and I'm saying, hey, this, he's got to have surgery. The doctor's saying he's got to have surgery, and I'm freaking out, and I'm like, man, what would my wife be doing? And his dad said to me, he said, coach, we either trust God or we don't, and we do. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, um, well, that was on Tuesday night. The next day we're supposed to lead the devotional, but I need to stay because it's my player. I need to stay in the hospital with Tyler, and so uh, I did, and uh, Kyle's going to say, hey, I'll, I'll take care of the work, you do this. Well, Philip and, and Richard were in there, and, and they aren't really big on, like, this is not my wheelhouse, but man, God provided, and God led, and they did a great job, and we heard great things about it, and there was great response from those guards and the men there. See, I thought I had big plans. Oh, I had them laid out, guys. I had everything under control. Right? I never even once stopped to ask God what he wanted me to do and how he wanted that trip to go. Because in my mind, I was like, well, I'm serving God. Like, I'm okay. I got this. I can do whatever I want, and God will bless it because I'm serving him. I mean, I'm literally leading teenagers over on a mission trip to talk to other teenagers about Jesus. We can do whatever we want. Well, it doesn't work that way. See, that week flipped my life upside down. It really did because I, all my plans went to nothing. Coming back from that, as I talked with a good friend of mine about the trip, I'm like, you know, it's crazy that God showed me that he doesn't need my plans, that I need his. And it was in that moment when I really felt God's call into ministry start leading me in that direction. See, we all like these 
functional gods, like these little G gods in our life, but when it comes to the idea of an omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign, big G God, we back down, right? We don't want that God who is in total control and constant control of everything because that includes our own lives. See, we like the idea, right, of being still and knowing, right, or letting go and letting God. These things make for great T-shirts and, and coffee mugs and home decor. We hang them in our house and we wear them everywhere. The truth is they don't fit into our lives or we don't let them fit into our lives. See, we don't really want to be still and know that God is in control because that means that we actually have to acknowledge and accept that we aren't. So instead, we just fall away. Look at what Peter says here, right? Jesus says to them, right, their flesh is useless, and he reminds them that God grants salvation. And it says that many no longer walked with him. They turned away. And it says Jesus said to the 12. Guys, he's down to 12. Now, we don't know how many were there, so we don't really know how many walked away, but I'm thinking it was a pretty significant number. And he's about to call one of the 12 a devil. So he's really down to 11 right here. And he turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? I don't know about if y'all have ever ever been a part of a whooping where where somebody besides you is getting that whooping. Or maybe parents, y'all are giving the whooping and other kids looking around with wide eyes and you get done and you feel like I'm in control. Hey, you want some of this, right? No, I don't don't want any of that, right? I'm... I'm good. It kind of seems like an obvious answer. Um, I, had a, I had a young man quit the football team in spring practice this year, and uh, he really didn't want to compete for a job, what it boiled down to. But what I've since found out is that he was talking to a bunch of teammates, and he was trying to get them to quit with him. And they were like, no, no, we want to play. We're committed to the team. And I, I find myself saying to the team in moments like that when someone's quit and trying to do that and trying to cause dissension, or maybe they made some poor decisions and we've removed them from the team, right? You kind of get this idea of, hey, anyone else? You want to go with them, right? And this is sort of what Jesus is saying here to the disciples, right? He says to them, I mean, his, his actual words is, do you want to go away as well? What he's saying is, where do you stand? What are you going to do? What's it going to be for you? And our second point today is simply this, it's that Jesus is everything and that he wants us to make him our everything see Peter answers him and I love what Peter says here Jesus says do you want to go away as well and Peter I just imagine Peter looking at him and he says Lord to whom shall we go right Peter says Lord you're it there's nowhere else we would rather be you are the one We can't even fathom the idea of following anyone else. Then he gives a great reason for that. He says, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Like, that's it. Peter says, says, we're all in. We're all in. Jesus, we believe you are the everything, and we want to make you the center of our life. We want our lives to be about you. See, we're all confronted with other options in this world, many options. Today, more than ever, all of us, every single day are faced with other people, places, and things that we can turn to. The world offers us more alternatives to Jesus today than we've ever known. 
And with faith with these, our response should simply be, to whom would I even go? Our lives should scream out, Jesus, you are my everything. Of course, I don't want to go anywhere else. Where else would I go? Nothing else gives life. It's you, Jesus. It's only you. Where would we go? Muhammad or Buddha? A pastor? To religion? See, too many times we turn to a religion or to a church. Not, not the church, but to a church to find our hope and to put our trust into. Too many times we put all of our hope in a pastor. Guys, I love Luke Allen, I love Jason Wood. They are incredible, godly men who I turn to for guidance and discipleship and help, but they are a terrible place to put all my hope in. They don't, and we don't as a staff. We don't want church members who are fans of the Covenant Church or who are fans of Luke or Jason's preaching. What we want are church members who are sold out, all in, committed followers to Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. We want a church, we want to be known as a church that makes everything that we do about Jesus, that we center any and everything that we do here around Jesus because nothing else gives life. No one else gives life, but Jesus does. His words give life. His spirit gives life. I read a quote from R.C. Sproul that's talking about this passage, and he said that Jesus is saying to us here, you have to come into me, be united to me, feast upon me, not just have a casual relationship to me. I love that word feast. See, this is a no-brainer for Peter when Jesus asked him this question, and it should be for us as well. I can tell you this, for most of my life, I had a casual relationship with Jesus. I did everything I could to make him fit into what I wanted. Even when others thought I was living for Jesus, I wasn't all in. I was just fitting him in when and where I felt like he could fit. Now on the outside, it looked good. And I had people who heaped a lot of praise on me for the way I coached or the way I taught or the way I parented or whatever else. But the bottom line is I was holding on to everything that I could. And even when I realized I was doing that, I found a way to rationalize it and justify it to myself and to anyone else who might be watching. My most commonly used justification was simply this. I, I don't need to worry God with that. It's too small. I was full of excuses, but I can remember the day when I decided to stop being casual and to start feasting. See, there was nothing casual about that afternoon because God got a hold of me in a big, big kind of way. And I hit my knees in total surrender. I said, God, you can have everything, not just the things that I want you to have, right? I want to be sold out, all in, committed to you and to only you. And that's a battle I still fight, but I can tell you this, like, I'm not a good fighter because I can't fight those battles and I find myself because I can't fight those battles more and more praise be to God for this asking the question like Lord who else would I turn to with this where else would I take this and it seems so silly now that I ever even tried to handle those things on my own I mean where else would I go it's a no-brainer there's no life in trying to handle things on my own See, most people haven't left everything and given everything up to follow Jesus. 
But Peter had. Peter had. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. That's all he knew. And Jesus says, drop your nets and follow me. And Peter left. He didn't know anything else. He knew Jesus. And that's why he finds this question so incredulous, probably even appalling that, some, that, that Jesus would even ask this to him. He had left everything. He had experienced Jesus on a number of levels, right? He saw him perform miracles. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and saw thousands come to Christ in a single day. He walked on water with Jesus. Peter had also felt the bitter sting of conviction and shame when he denied Christ. Peter had seen the resurrected Christ and he had had the spirit of God in him. Peter was feasting. He tells God, hey, we've believed and have come to know, tells Jesus, we have believed and come to know that he is the Holy One of God. See, Peter doesn't deny that these are hard words to hear, but he does acknowledge that these are words of life. He says that to Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. And so our third point today is this. Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to make us new. Church, if all we have is a mental understanding or some awareness of who Jesus is, it really does us no good. Our flesh won't do it. Going to church won't do it. Theology and religion won't do it. There is no new life, no spiritual life. There's no eternal life without Jesus. We see back in John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And in verses 5 and 6, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. See, Jesus is saying here, the flesh cannot produce spiritual fruit. The flesh can't produce life. Only the spirit gives life. Apart from the spirit, our fallen human nature prevents us, all of us, from any inclinations we might have towards any spiritual things. And this begs the question today, Am I, are are you resting on the strength of your own righteousness? Paul in Romans 7, 18, right there in the first part, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And just to make sure that we know he's not talking about Jesus dwelling in him, he says, that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in our flesh. It's only when we realize that our flesh is useless and no good for producing any good thing that we can begin to turn everything over to Jesus. It's only at this point that we're even able to go all in with Jesus. Many people claim Christianity today, and they claim to follow Jesus, just like those disciples did. But when the rubber meets the road, so to speak, right here, right, when we come across a teaching that's hard, maybe it's difficult to understand, we just don't want to take the time to figure it out or to ask or to read or to pray through that. Or maybe it's just one we don't like. Maybe it's one that we don't want to hear. We simply walk away. Maybe even choosing to ignore that entire section of scripture or those teachings completely. See, we try to become our own God, little g God. We make our own rules that fit into our own little bubbles and our comfort zones, right? The time is going to come, church, when Jesus looks at us and he asks the same question. Do you want to go away as well? What will our answer be? 
right? Will will we drop our head and walk away like the rich man did when Jesus looked at him and said, sell everything you have and come follow me? Or like the man that found that treasure in the field where he sold everything and chased after Jesus, will we boldly and confidently with certain faithfulness reply, where else would I go? Church, the word of God is life. His spirit speaks through his word and eternal life comes only from his spirit. Maybe God is speaking to you today. Maybe today is the day when you let go of the functional little g gods in your life and you give it all to Jesus. Some of you in here today may not have any relationship with Jesus Christ. Perhaps today God is granting that to you. Perhaps the Father is calling you to that relationship. Don't wait. Answer that call right now, today. Maybe you know Christ. Maybe you've come to know and believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Yet you still spend your life sprinkling Jesus in where you see fit, just so he can season your life and make it a little bit better. Maybe today is a day you make him the whole meal. Maybe today is a day you make Jesus your everything. I'm going to pray in just a second, and I'll be in the back with Jason if any of you would like to pray about anything. We're going to take communion here in just a second. Uh, Jesus told the disciples that the bread was his body and the wine, the juice, was his blood, and for us to take it in remembrance of him. You don't have to be a member of the Covenant Church to partake with us today, but you do have to be a member of God's church. We have stations set up, two in the front and two in the back right here for you to come. I want to encourage you just to spend some time in prayer and then come when you're ready and you can drink and eat there at your seat. I just want to encourage you to do what Peter was doing, just feast right there today on the true food and the true drink. If you aren't a member of the body of Christ, we're going to ask you to just maybe sit this one out today. Take time at your seat today to reflect on what you've heard, what God's saying to you, and take time to pray. I'm going to pray for us. Father, just thank you for the opportunity to share your word this morning. Father, I thank you for all that you do for us. I pray that in my own life and in the lives of those believers sitting here today right now, Father, that we would turn over all these little G functional gods to you. We would stop trying to sprinkle you in and trying to fit you in wherever we think you go. And, Father, we would turn everything over to you today. We would make everything about you, Jesus. We would make you our everything. Father, for those in this room that may not have a relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would draw them to you right now, that you would open their eyes to see and their ears to hear. Let me thank you for your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. That is the true food and the true drink. And I pray that today and every day that we would feast on you, Father.